Now this morning, we are continuing our exposition through the book of Exodus. Uh, We are in that habit here at this church at Redeemer. We just move verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph through books of the Bible. And this morning, we are in Exodus chapter 26 and 27. Now, I mentioned two weeks ago that this is the section of Exodus where Bible reading plans go to die. Uh, This is the section where our eyes can quickly glaze over. And uh, this is where all of a sudden we become experts in speed reading. So just to prepare you, prepare all of you this morning, in just a moment, I'm going to read all the verses. Yes, all the verses. I'll pause after each chapter, give some comment. Uh, And then hopefully at the end, I can wrap up with two lessons from chapters 26 and 27. But I know during the time that we're going to be reading chapters 26 and 27, you're going to ask, you're going to be tempted to want to check out. Uh, You're going to be tempted to let your mind wander, and you're going to be tempted to ask me after the service, why didn't you just summarize it very quickly and get to the good stuff, the sermon. Well, no one has ever called my sermon the good stuff, but why didn't you just get to the sermon? Well, a couple of years ago, I was at a shepherd's conference, which is a conference for pastors, and one of the keynote speakers there was uh, Pastor Mark Dever, and he came up and he said, I'm going to be preaching through Psalm 119, and there are 176 verses in Psalm 119, and we're like, oh, okay, this is going to be good because it's about the Word of God. That's what Psalm 119 is all about. So he begins reading in verse 1. By the time he got to probably verse 16, people started looking at each other in the room and were wondering, is he going to keep going? Well, he ended up reading all 176 verses. And when he was done, he said to the congregation, I bet you were wondering and maybe hoping I wasn't going to read the whole thing. And he says, but Psalm 19 is about the Word of God. It's about the power of the Word of God. And how could I possibly not read then all of the Word of God? Well, in other words, he was basically saying the Word of God is living and active. Uh, We like to say here at our church, the most perfect part of the sermon is the reading of God's Word. So beyond such reasons, I also think you have to remember that while chapters 26 and 27 are very boring to us, okay, while it may be very boring to us, this was the heart and center of life for Israel. Most of us aren't interested in construction plans unless it comes to our own home. And if we're building our own home, all of a sudden we care whether or not the, the, the foundation is laid right. We care whether or not it's being framed correctly. We care whether or not the, the roof is built right so that there's no more leaks and that the underlayment is properly attached. We wonder, is this house built safely? And for Israel, this was the house that God would dwell in. This was the house that was literally the center of their lives. Whenever Israel picked up and moved all their tents afterwards when they 
when they would decamp would be would encompass and surround the tabernacle itself. It was spiritually spiritual center of their lives, and so they lived this. And the in, these instructions that they had uh, were something they experienced day after day. Its details were lessons to point the people and us, I believe, to very profound truths. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles as we look at Exodus chapter 26. Follow along in your own Bibles as I read. Exodus 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, 4 cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And ye shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps, so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for, tent, for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves. And the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the, of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasp into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the parts that remain of the curtain of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubits on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this, on this side and, this, and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames of the tabernacle 20 frames for the south side, and 40, fr 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame, and for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for the corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners, and there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. Almost there. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. 
The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it, and shall hang it on four pillars of cassia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver, and shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there with the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side and and the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be made of gold. And you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. All right. 930 words. What are they all about? The instructions in chapter 26 give us a fair idea of what the tabernacle looked like. To help you, I've included on the screen a picture of an artist's rendering of the tabernacle. Uh, If you take time to compare pictures of the tabernacle online, uh, you'll find that no two pictures look exactly alike. And the reason is there's a lot left to the engineering of it that would have been left to the craftsmen and perhaps even to Moses, who was given an image before God of what the tabernacle would actually look like. But we get a good sense of what it's like here. And what we understand is that it's about 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. In other words, it's not that big. It's about the length from here to the sound booth. And its width would have been about less than the width of one of these pews. And its height would maybe reach up to where those stained glass windows that we have here at our church. We could probably fit, if we really wanted to, three tabernacles in our church sanctuary here. So by modern standards, it's quite small. The structure consists of 48 interconnected ladder frames overlaid with gold, and it's designed so that it could be taken down and moved because it was a mobile tent. Uh, Some of you really like to go camping. I'm still trying to figure out why, but you really like to go camping. And you know what you do in camping. You get a bunch of sticks together, and then you, put a, you drape it over with some cloth, and it becomes your house, your living space. And here it's much the same. But the tabernacle is much heavier. In Numbers, it says the Levites were given six wagons and 12 oxen to transport the tabernacle, its frames, and all its cloth coverings. There were no walls or roof to the tabernacle. Rather, it was covered by four layers of cloth and skin. On the outside, it's not much to look at, actually. 
Uh, the cheapest materials are on the outside, but it's also a waterproofing material on the outside. Four layers of cloth and skin. But the inner layer, layers were decoratively woven together. We've heard it several times, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn woven together. And the interior uh, carried a cherubim motif uh, that, with images embroidered on, of cherubim embroidered on the tapestry. Now notice, uh, we'll, it'll be more specific later in the next chapter, that the tabernacle faces east, and that's going to become important uh, later. We'll talk about, more about that later. But it's a two-bedroom tent. That's how, you, how we ought to think about it. It has an east room, and in that room is called the holy place. It measures 20 by 15 feet. It was an open concept design uh, furnished with a table, a golden lampstand, and an altar of incense. In the west wing, behind another veil, was the back room, what we call the most holy place, or often called the Holy of Holies. This di- dimensions of this was a perfect cube, 15 feet by 15 by 15. But it was in this Holy of Holies that God says, I will meet with my people. This was the throne room of God. All right, on to chapter 27. Let's take a look here. A little bit shorter. Chapter 27, you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be one piece with it. You shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make a hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side of the court, you shall have uh, hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be made of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty, and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the, cur- for, of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be fifty cubits. The hangings on the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and, their, and three bases. For the gate of the court shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and within four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver." Um, Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the breadth 50, and the height 5 cubits, with hangings of fine twine linen and bases of bronze, and the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. 
you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil, that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed through their generations by the people of Israel. Chapter 27 describes for us the biggest piece of furniture in the tabernacle. It's the bronze altar. Uh, This was where worshipers would bring their sin offerings and guilt offerings before the Lord. And again, I have a picture of it for you on the screen. It measured seven feet wide by seven feet wide and four feet high. So it was essentially a square with horn-like projections at each of its four corners. It's not clear exactly what those horns were used for. Uh, Perhaps it's decorative. Perhaps it's a symbol of strength. Perhaps it's used to tie down some of the, the meat that was to be burned, some of the sacrifices that were to be burned on the bronze altar. Uh, Certainly we see later on in the Old Testament that when people were kind of trying to get to, uh, when accused criminals were in trouble, they would cling to the horns of the altar. This was those horns here. Made of wood, it was overlaid with bronze. And this is important to note because up until this point, everything is made of gold. Inside the, the tent of meeting itself, everything is gold. Gold ark, gold table, gold lampstand. You have even gold clasps by which you could fit together the tent itself. But outside uh, the tent in the courtyard, further from the throne room of God, would be things made of bronze and usually less common things. Uh, Why is that? It's probably because bronze is just a hardier material. It could take the heat a little bit better. Uh, though probably it also is, has a spiritual significance that things outside were more common. It's, again, unclear exactly what the bronze altar might look like. This is just one rendering. Uh, those, everything is made of bronze, but we're, it's probably unlikely that the whole thing is made of bronze. Uh, I'm not sure it could withstand all the heat from all the offerings. Uh, for that grate to just be made out of bronze, but uh, this is what we are, these are some renderings that we have. We also have a description of the courtyard in this chapter, and here it is on the screen also, and it's 150 feet by 75 feet wide and only seven and a half feet high, so actually the, the tent of meeting would actually stick out a little bit. Now, what does all of this mean? Can you picture what it would have been like to live with this in the center of your life? You're a worshiper. You want to worship God, and you get past those entrances, and then there's this bronze altar for your sacrifice, and behind it would have been this tent of meeting, What is the purpose of all of this? What lessons would have been reinforced to Israel day after day, month after month, and even centuries after centuries? 
Well, let me suggest two foundational lessons from this design. First, drawing near to God is impossible, for God is holy. We know from chapter 25 that the tabernacle is built so that God may dwell with his people, and yet the tabernacle, by its design, reinforces the holiness of God. And what do I mean by holiness? I mean all his perfections, all his perfect attributes, his divine character, his otherness. We see God's holiness actually in three ways. First, the tabernacle tells us that God God's holiness, how it expresses itself, is that God is imminent. Imminent. Imminent means he's present with his creation. He's near. The very word for tabernacle in Hebrew is mishkan, which means to dwell. It's a dwelling place. The goal of Exodus was not simply to free Israel, but to free them that they might be in fellowship with God. And if you notice the design of the tabernacle, it is a veritable Garden of Eden. The entrance of the tabernacle faces east. Why is this significant? Because the entrance to Eden faced east. You ever wonder why illustrations with a tabernacle always include a compass next to it? to tell you which way is east? Why is that? Because when Adam and Eve were cast out from the presence of God from the garden, where did they head? East of Eden. When Cain and Abel, when Cain killed his brother, which way did Cain head when when it says he went away from the presence of the Lord? In Genesis, it tells us east of Eden. Don't go east. You want to head west. What is, that the en- gar- what is guarding the entrance to Eden? Cherubim. And what is the veil? What is embroidered on the veil of the tabernacle? Cherubim. This is, what, what's, what's, what, what is, it's gold and there's onyx here. And why is that important? Because that's what was also listed as being in the Garden of Eden. You see that there's a tree of life. Where's the tree of life? It is the lampstand shaped to look like a tree. God is said to walk to and fro in Eden in Genesis. In Leviticus 26, God does the same in the tabernacle. God is saying, Come back to me. That's what he's saying. Come back to me. Stop going east. Head west. Come into my presence. I want to be walking with you in the cool of the day like I did with Adam and Eve before their fall. Because it's what I made you for. Because God is imminent. He is near God is not a watchmaker that created the world and says, well, you guys do whatever you guys want. I'm just not a part of it. No, God is present in all creation. Yet at the same time, he's transcendent. That's the second way we see God's holiness. He's transcendent. 
This means that God exists above all earthly things. Though present in all creation, God remains distinct from it. He's unknowable. He's far away. So God is both imminent and transcendent at the same time. God is both near and God is both unapproachable. Imagine being an Israelite. You have a courtyard to to bring your offerings. But you can't go past this courtyard. You can't go past that outer veil into the holy place because who's allowed in there? Nobody except the priests. Only the priests are allowed behind the outer veil. And even then, who's allowed to go behind into the holy of holies? Nobody except one person, the high priest, and only one time in the year. You see, this God who chooses to dwell in the midst of his people is not a God you saunter up to and say, hello, God. No, that's not what you do. You come close, but you don't come casually. The cherubim, the inner veil, the outer veil, all of it says, do not enter, excluded, separate. And all this is actually God's grace to Israel. He was going to draw near to them, but they had to be, they had to know, they had to be careful. Uh, my family and I enjoy spending a lot of time in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, we enjoy going on hikes. Some of, some of us enjoy going on hikes. Uh, and you get to go up these beautiful waterfalls if you wanted to. Bridalville Falls. Uh, you get to go up Mount Loma. And when you climb these falls, you can be hundreds of feet into the air, and you can look over the edge, and you can see a freeway running beneath you. You can see the Columbia. But if you go up there, you'll see that wise park rangers also install a strong fence along the edges of that beautiful overlook. Rather than preventing our enjoyment of the view, those fences made it possible for us to soak it all in without the danger of falling. We could safely get right up to the edge. And this is what God offered his people with the tabernacle. Both his imminent and transcendent holiness. One more aspect. One more aspect of God's holiness. He is invisible. There are all sorts of elaborate precautions and protections. But have you ever thought about how many Israelites actually ever saw the ark? Typically, only one person, the high priest. And even then, when he would go in, it would be full of smoke and incense as if to shield his eyes from the tabernacle. When the ark is transported, we read in Numbers 4, it's always wrapped in layers of protective fabric. And we wonder, why not put the ark front and center in full display? And that's probably where our, we would go if we spent so much time on a on a gold box that contained the Ten Commandments. We would want to put it front and center for everyone to see the faithfulness of God. But they didn't. Why design a golden box with cherubim on it just to hide it away? Certainly it's because God knows the human heart and how we would probably idolize it, how Israel would idolize it, and they sure did later on. But even more, we learn that in the Old Testament, just like the New Testament, people are to walk by faith, 
and not by sight. God is an invisible God, imminent, transcendent, who is both near and hidden. And in all this, we see that God is wholly other and that he really is holy, holy, holy. Drawing near to God is impossible for he is holy. But second, we learn from the tabernacle that drawing near to God is made possible by sacrifice. Drawing near to God is made possible by sacrifice. You put yourself in the place of an Israelite. God has decided, he said, I'm going to make my dwelling place with you. I rescued you out of Egypt. You saw all of that, and I'm going to be with you now, and I'm going to dwell in your midst. And you are like the psalmist. You say, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And yet, you dare not draw near. For you know that you are a man or a woman, a boy or a girl of unclean lips. And dwell among people of unclean lips. Because what is the first thing you see when you enter into the tabernacle as a worshiper? You see the bronze altar. That's what you see. An altar for sacrifices. And it says you cannot come to God on your own. It says without the shedding of blood, there is no way that you are going to draw near to me. It says I can't fellowship with God because he is holy and I'm not. We read later in Exodus that there are to be morning and evening sacrifices burning continually on the altar. The courtyard, imagine it being an assault on all your senses. Visually, you would see the smoke rising in the air morning and evening. You would hear the bleating of bulls and sheep as they were slaughtered in the courtyard. You would smell the sizzling of burnt blood, the stench of blood. Later in Leviticus, we we see that a burnt offering is going to be required. A lamb is to be offered up. A bull is to be offered up. Every time a child is born, when there is a bodily discharge from man or woman, extra on Saturday, extra at the beginning of the month, every time a disease is cleared up, you go and you bring an offering to the Lord. This was an extremely busy place, a ready reminder that approaching God requires a sacrifice. You and I, we need a sacrifice. We are an unholy people in the midst of a holy God, and we dare not draw near. And imagine this going on for centuries, morning and evening, not just once a day, but continually offering 
these sacrifices. Think of all the lambs sacrificed over and over to atone for sin. Over and over because a lamb is never enough. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And with this as your heritage, for centuries, again and again. And imagine what it would have been felt like if you were there and you heard a prophet cry out to you, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You see, Christ is our sacrifice. Jesus, the Son of God, very God of very God, became flesh, and he what? Tabernacled with us. He dwelt among us. Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice, as Hebrews says, that secures for us an eternal redemption. He did it by suffering and dying on the cross. He is our substitute, dying in our place. Hebrews 13.10 says, Jesus is our altar. We have an altar, it says, Hebrews 13.10, from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The altar is is Jesus Christ. And when Jesus hung on the cross, paying the penalty of sin for all those who would trust in him, something miraculous happened at the temple in Jerusalem. The curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, God has made a way past the sacrifice past the altar, past the, the outer veil, into the holy place, past the inner veil, into the holy of holies, past the cherubim, and God invites us into his presence. And this way that God had made is still open to us today. There is a way for us to draw near to the throne of God with confidence by repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Christ alone. If you're not a Christian this morning, I ask you, will you forever be estranged from God? Will you forever be distant from him because the way is still open and God is beckoning you today to come to him through his son? Church, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And as those who have placed our faith in Jesus, we have now, we are now called the tabernacle of the presence of God. And yet there are tendencies, aren't there, for us to live like we are part of, like we're still Israel. Like we're still in this old dispensation. There are times, aren't there, when we try to bring an inferior sacrifice to seek approval with God. I mean, if you're like me, we have a tendency to want to earn God's favor, to do some acts of righteousness, to say, if I just do this, God will be happier with me. He won't be angry at me anymore. If I just do my quiet times enough, show up enough, Pray enough, read enough. Finally, God will accept me. 
and bless me. And we forget that we have been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. And we forget that you are already accepted in Christ. Brothers and sisters, do not think that the gospel message is a message of all that you need to do for God. It's first and foremost a message about what God has done for you. God in his grace gave us his son that we might draw near. Let's give him praise for that. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. And we ask that it would remind us and help us to draw ever near to you and that you desire for, your, for men and women to come into your presence, that we might be who you made us to be. And so, Father in heaven, we ask that uh, we would not fall back into these insufficient ways of drawing near to you, to somehow think that it is by our works that we might find acceptance before you. But we praise you for Jesus Christ, our sacrifice, our altar, our tabernacle, that we might be dwelling with you both now and forever, face to face in the new Jerusalem. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.